In our current series, our sermon series called Living by the Book, we're kind of addressing different um, aspects of life for each of us. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus, to obey God, to glorify him? And last week, we dealt with biblical masculinity, what it means to be a man. What is God's design for manhood? And much of what we covered last week actually applies to manhood and womanhood. Uh, So if you maybe weren't with us last week, I would encourage you to go back and and listen to that. Um, Today, we're going to move on to talk about uh, God's design for women. I probably won't say femininity too much because it's a tongue twister. I'll probably say womanhood, even though we talked about masculinity last week. But we want to address womanhood, biblical femininity. Now, some people in the world at this point would probably look at me and and shake their head and say that I can't possibly be someone to speak about this topic because I'm not a woman, right? So maybe they'd call it mansplaining or something like that. I don't know. Um, But they would say, you can't be the one to speak on this topic. But we need to remember that authority is not found primarily in experience. Authority, truth, is found in the Word of God. And although I am not a woman, I never have been, I never will be, my task as a pastor is to faithfully shepherd the flock through the preaching of the Word. The way that I am to serve you is by proclaiming, explaining, and applying God's truth to you as God's people. And this includes the truth of Scripture concerning God's design for women, for biblical womanhood. What I would argue is true femininity. I really have three goals this morning. This kind of forms our outline. First goal is I want all of us to understand and believe the biblical truth about womanhood. So I am preaching this morning to your mind. I want you to think God's thoughts after him, to reject lies and to know the truth. This is essential. But a second goal is I'm not just preaching to the mind. I want to preach this morning to your will. I want you to obey God's commands for women. Yes, we want our minds to be enlightened, but the submission of the will in obedience to God is essential for us as followers of Jesus. But I not only want to preach to your mind and preach to your will, the third goal is I want to preach this morning to your heart. I want to invite you to delight in what scripture says, to actually love God's design for women, and to find satisfaction and joy in it. So I'm going to ask if you would please bow your head. I'm going to pray that God would help us to accomplish these goals this morning for his glory. Lord, we do ask that you would give us this morning understanding. There's so much confusion. There's so many lies out there. Renew our minds as we've just sung according to your word. Help us to think right thoughts and true thoughts as shaped by Scripture. And we pray also that you would strengthen us to submit our wills to what we find in Scripture, to humbly obey all that you command, not just to know the truth, but to live in light of that truth. And we pray that you would stir good and godly affections in our hearts so that we would would love your truth, that we would delight in obedience, that it would not be a cold, dead duty but an expression of our love for you and our satisfaction in you. We pray for all of this, God, so that you would be glorified, so that we can become like Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. 
Amen. So let's kind of touch on all three of those goals this morning. First of all, number one, we need to understand the biblical design for womanhood. I'm going to invite you to turn again to Genesis chapter 1. Everything starts in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. We won't be preaching these three chapters exhaustively, but touching on a few key points. We need to understand the biblical design for womanhood. And the first aspect of biblical womanhood we need to understand and that we must believe, that we must think in our minds is that women are created in God's image. We see this in Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28 continues, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Women are created in God's image like man. Man and woman, therefore, are equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in our worth. Both are granted the privilege of reflecting God's image, bearing God's image, a privilege that nothing else in creation has. But man and woman together share this great privilege, not just the privilege of reflecting God's image, but also they share the privilege of ruling over creation on God's behalf as co-regents. God blessed them and gave them this dominion over all the earth. Both man and woman are therefore equally precious in God's sight and equally necessary in God's creation purposes. We have to start here when we understand manhood and womanhood, that man and woman are both made in God's image and therefore equal. But it's not just in creation that we find that man and woman have this radical equality, but also in salvation. We, we see that man and woman are on equal footing as we stand before the cross. In Galatians 3.28, you don't have to turn there, but Paul says, referring to these people who've been saved by God's grace, there is neither Jew nor Greek, that ethnic and cultural distinctions evaporate at the cross. There is neither slave nor free. There's not a hierarchy in God's kingdom. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. We have an equality in what we are as created beings, but for those of us who are believers, we also share this equality in our standing before God. It doesn't mean there's no such thing as male or female or Jew or Greek. Those distinctions still exist, but they have no bearing on our standing before God. They have no bearing on our worth or our value or our dignity. At the foot of the cross, we are equal, equal as sinners, equal in our need. We are equal in receiving the grace of forgiveness, equal in enjoying the status of adoption into God's family. There's a radical equality that's rooted in creation that transcends time and culture and history. And there's a radical equality for men and women in the gospel at well. This too is true at all times and in all places. And to ignore this truth of man and woman's equality in Christ and as bearers of God's image, to ignore this truth is a crime. It's a crime not only against women, to say that they are lesser than, but it's a crime against the glory of God. 
It's a crime against the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is an essential aspect of God's design for women. We have to affirm and believe and know and understand the equality that we share as bearers of God's image and recipients of God's grace in the gospel. But there's a second aspect to understanding womanhood. Although equal, men and women are different. Different in form and function. You see, equality, despite what people may say, equality does not mean sameness. It does not mean sameness. We are made to reflect God's glory in unique and different ways. Men and women are made to complement one another physically and emotionally and spiritually and functionally in the home and in the church and in the world. We're given different roles that bear out our different purposes. We see the equality of man and woman in, in Genesis 1, and we start to see their differences in chapter 2. First, we are different in the sequence and manner of our creation. Remember in verse 7 of chapter 2, man is made from the dust. In verse 7, Moses writes, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Woman is made then second, made out of Adam's rib. Look down in verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You know, it's interesting, even like in English, we see that the word woman is formed from the word man. The same thing's true in the Hebrew language. The word ish, referring to man, is just amended a little bit. Isha, which refers to woman. Very similar even to how we get our word woman in English. We, we see that man, woman, ish, isha, the, that the woman comes from the man. And this order of creation indicates a certain kind of seniority. The fact that Adam names her indicates a measure of authority over her and also responsibility for her. We talked about this last week. The idea of headship comes from creation, and it transcends culture. I mean, this is truth that we find in the book of Genesis thousands of years later. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul affirms to a different people in a different context, in a different culture, that this principle of headship still applies. This idea doesn't get updated as time and history progresses. This is something that is essential to what we are, how we were made. That's the first difference. But it's not just when the woman was made that sets her apart from the man. It's also why she was made. Look in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Woman is made from the man, but woman is also made for the man. To be a helper, that Hebrew word etzer, a helper for her. Apostle Paul again in 1 Corinthians 11 writes, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now at this point, the scriptures begin begin to become very offensive to many in our modern culture. What can it mean that woman was made for man? There is a right way to understand that and a wrong way to understand 
understand that. In what sense is she for the man? Well, look again at verse 18. God says it's not good that the man is alone. And as we affirmed last week, this has nothing to do with Adam being lonely. Adam had fellowship with God. He walked with him in the garden. He was not aware of loneliness as a category of feeling. Adam was not lonely in that sense. He had fellowship with God. But it is not good that Adam is alone because he could not carry out God's purposes for him alone. He could not fulfill God's plans for humanity alone. He couldn't procreate and fill the earth. He couldn't exercise dominion over the earth. He couldn't fulfill his responsibilities without the help of the woman. This is why she was created. Not for Adam's purposes. Get this, the woman is created ultimately for God's purposes. She is not an accessory to the man. She does not exist simply to enhance his life. She is created to make up for his deficiencies and to help him carry out God's purposes. She doesn't exist for Adam. She exists for God. They both exist for God. They exist for his glory. They both exist to advance his divine purposes by fulfilling different but complementary roles. His role is to lead and hers is to help. Now this idea of being a helper, some people will think that that somehow signifies weakness or inferiority, that it means you're less important. But it's interesting to think about this. It's actually the one in need of help who seems to have a deficiency here. It's amazing that this word for helper is used 17 times in the Old Testament to refer to God himself. This calling that woman has to be a helper is actually a function that God often fulfills in his grace towards us, in meeting our needs. It's interesting, in Exodus chapter 18, Moses names two of his sons. The name of one of his sons is Eliezer. Eli, meaning my God, and Etzer, that same word for helper, For Moses said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. In Psalm 70, verse 5, David writes, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. In Psalm 115, 11, it says, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Psalm 146, 5 says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord, his God. The woman is called to be a helper to the man, but this, does not, this is not a sign of weakness. It is a role that bestows upon her great honor and dignity as she supplies what is lacking in meeting the needs of this man so that he can carry out God's purposes for him. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen 17, that although man is the head of woman, Paul writes that woman is the glory of Man. So we are different, different in form and function. Man is made to lead, woman is made to follow. Man is made to work and to serve and to use his strength to bring the blessing of provision and protection. Woman is made to be a helper whose strength is used to nurture and to fill out and help the man's weaknesses. And that's how it's intended to work, but it doesn't always work out that way, does it? There's not always this, bu- this beautiful, perfect harmony of leadership and submission, of service and help, of work and nurturing. 
There's oftentimes great difficulty in the relationships between men and women. There's often strife. There's often misunderstanding and mistreatment, manipulation. Why? Why is that? Here's something very important we have to understand this morning. The differences between male and female are rooted in creation. The difficulties spring from the curse. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Because how you diagnose the problem will determine what kind of solution you pursue. The differences between male and female are rooted in creation, therefore good. The difficulties spring not from creation, but from the curse. Springs from the curse. Go on to chapter 3. We see how this happens. What happens when the serpent comes and tempts Eve? She usurps the role of leader, doesn't she? She makes a decision for them by taking the fruit, eating it, and then giving it to her husband. She usurps his authority as a leader. And Adam, we talked about this last week, abdicates his responsibility. Instead of leading, he follows. Instead of speaking truth and protecting his wife, he leaves her exposed and vulnerable to the lies of the devil. And in reaching for gain... Eve loses, doesn't she? She loses. The result of their sin is pain, both physically and relationally. For Adam, his role of work becomes difficult. We see this in the curse. Verse 17, to Adam, God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because he was a follower instead of a leader, and have eaten of the tree because he disobeyed God, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return from the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because of sin, Adam's life gets difficult. Work becomes hard, and death is the end of it. And for Eve, her role in childbirth becomes painful. Notice what happens in his word to the woman. This is in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. What was supposed to be a blessing of procreation now becomes mixed and mingled with sorrow. In pain, you shall bring forth children. But it's not just childbearing that becomes difficult. Marriage becomes difficult. The relationship between male and female becomes difficult. Look, he says, your desire shall be for your husband. Not meaning romantic desire, but meaning that you're going to want his job. You're going to desire the influence and the leadership and the prerogative of initiative that belongs to him alone. You're going to desire that. And he, or you could say, but he shall rule over you. His leadership, instead of being tender and kind and bringing blessing, is often going to be marked by brutality and harshness and power. The dynamic between man and woman is ruined, not because they're different, but because of sin. These differences should have complemented, they should have complemented one another perfectly, but sin makes it Difficult for them both, the blessing of marriage, the primary intersection of the relationship between male and female becomes broken. And instead of finding Eve to be a helper, Adam now finds Eve to be an adversary. And instead of receiving Adam's leadership with joy, the dynamic of leading and submitting becomes a source of covetousness and conflict as Eve now finds it difficult to follow her husband. You see, masculinity and femininity 
have been distorted by sin. And we have to understand the problem to understand the solution. What's the answer to the pain of the curse? What's the answer to the conflict between men and women? What's the answer between the mistreatment and the cruelty, the manipulation, the strife, the struggle? Is it erasing the differences between men and women? Is it trying to eradicate and and therefore redefine the roles that men and women are called to fulfill? No. The answer is not a rejection of femininity or the redefining of of femininity. The answer to this strife is the redemption of femininity through the gospel and allowing God's grace to forgive you and change you and restore you into what he meant you to be in the beginning so that your strengths are joyfully expressed in receiving the leadership that God has placed in your life, whether that leadership is in the context of the home or the church or the world. Biblical womanhood starts with an embrace of truth. We believe God's design is good, that we are equal, but we are different, different in form and function, and we're called to fulfill different roles in the world. And that leads us to our second point. If we need to understand and believe this truth, it needs to produce obedience in us. I want to call you this morning to embrace God's command commands for women. Embrace God's commands for women. There's a few of these that we'll touch on. First of all, biblical womanhood requires obediently embracing God's role for women in the home and in the church. We won't spend much time here because I'm going to preach um, in the future a sermon that's specifically targeted to wives and another sermon specifically targeted towards parenting. But I just want to reference this. What is God's role for women in the home? Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Again, it's not about the man, it's about God. This is how you honor God, wives. Submit to your husbands. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. There's a glorious pattern here in the gospel, the church's relationship to Christ that's meant to be reflected in the home. Wives receive the leadership of their husbands and respond submissively to it, just as the church receives the lordship of Christ and responds submissively to him. Wives, this is simply what God commands, and biblical womanhood requires obedience to this command. It's not just in the home, it's also in the church. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 11, Paul says, let a woman learn quietly, With all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That's why we will not be hiring a female pastor here at Redemption Hill Church. This is not God's design for the roles we are to fulfill. Paul gives a reason in verse 13. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Eve was not deceived. Oh, and Adam, sorry. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul says it's because of what we see in the garden. Growing out of that are our roles and functions in the church. And this limitation for women, the fact that women are not to serve in positions of authority in the church over men, that they are not to exercise authority through preaching and teaching, that is not a statement of inferiority. Paul says rather it's an example of how everyone suffers when we refuse to fulfill the roles God has given us. Look what happened in the garden. Those same kinds of errors 
the church would be susceptible to error if we follow that pattern of abdicating leadership and usurping leadership. You see, in the church, God has established a pattern of male leadership in the form of pastors or elders, those who exercise authority as leaders and teachers. Women may be very gifted, sometimes more gifted than many of the men in the church. Women may be very godly, oftentimes more godly and more mature, more spiritual in that sense than many of the men in the church. But it is better for everyone, for men and women, when men lead and when women joyfully receive that leadership. This is God's design, and it requires obedience of us to submit to the pattern he has established. Now, all this talk of submission and not leading, does this mean that women are just passive passengers? Does this mean that women are just along for the ride in the home and in the church? No, absolutely not. All throughout the Bible, if you read it, which I encourage you to, women are always featuring prominently in God's program. We would not be here today as a church, as Christians, if it were not for faithful, godly, spiritual women. We owe much to them. And there are a million things that women can do in the church. There's only one or two things they can't. But women can be involved in evangelism, in discipleship, in the fulfilling of all the one another's given to the church at large, in ministries of service, in ministries of teaching other women and teaching children, in all sorts of things. And a very simple reading of the Old and New Testament shows that God often uses women and their gifts and their obedience and their talents to bring glory to his name and blessing to his people. There are a million yeses for women in the church and in the home and in the world. There are only a very few no's. But in the name of equality, we are not to go around trying to erase those differences and reversing those roles. Some of you may be saying, well, what if I'm a woman who doesn't have a husband? What if I'm a woman who perhaps doesn't have a father to follow his leadership? What if I'm not at church and my pastor's not there to follow his lead? Does biblical womanhood mean that I'm just supposed to be passive and helpless and wait around for a man to do everything for me? Again, no. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. I love how John Piper describes femininity. He says, at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. It's kind of a packed sentence. But I think those words are important. A disposition, what does that mean? Women can do many things that men do. Women can influence. Women can be creative Um, women can work, women can do many things, but it is possible to do those things in a way that delights in God's design, that readily receives the active leadership of men in ways that is godly, or it's possible to do all those same things in a way that actually distorts God's design, to have a heart that is hostile or resentful or proudly independent. You see, God wants your heart to be humble and receptive before him. That's simply all this means doesn't mean that you can't do all these things that are out there that women can do and ought to do. It means that your heart towards godly male leadership is humble and receptive and obedient. So we need to embrace the biblical roles that God has 
designed for us. This is a matter of obedience. We need to obey those commands. But there's a second area of obedience. Obedient um, womanhood, biblical femininity, will seek to cultivate the markers of mature womanhood. This is more than just what you do. This speaks to who you are, to who you are. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for instance. Um, Paul gives many instructions there. But just a couple points I'll, I'll touch on. First of all, for women, godly women will honor God even with their external appearance. There are, your external appearance is to be, first of all, distinct. If men and women are different, created by God to be different, is the way that you portray yourself to the world, in your dress and with your hair and with your, your countenance, is that something that honors and embraces those distinctions or something that seems to be more masculine than feminine? and to minimize or erase those distinctions. Since God made us different, the way we present ourselves to the world ought to reflect a heart that embraces that difference. If we present ourselves as the opposite sex, that's actually an act of treason against our creator. That's why in the Old Testament law it says in Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. That's strong language, abomination, something that God hates, something that incurs God's wrath. Now, this doesn't mean you can't wear your husband's like, you know, sweatshirt this morning if you're cold because you're in a really cold room. That's not what this means. What it means is that you're not to dress in a way that presents yourself as the opposite sex. We are to maintain the distinctions of masculinity and femininity. These things may change throughout culture as different you know, kinds of clothing. It looked different in Abraham's day than it might look today in our day, but there are always clear cultural indicators of masculinity and femininity. And as believers, Christians, women are to embrace those distinctions, to be distinct. We're never to cast those markers off as those who reject God's created distinctions. To do so is disobedience. But it's not just gender that we express outwardly. You also express your inward attitude towards the different roles for men and women. We won't take much time here in 1 Corinthians 11, but Paul gives some instructions that are sometimes confusing, but I just want to say a brief word about it. In 1 Corinthians 11:5, Paul says to believers in the context of the church, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaved. For if, a man, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it may as well shave it, basically, is what Paul's saying. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. And now there have been oceans of ink spilled on this passage and forests of trees felled to print the paper. But very simply, I think this is what Paul is getting at. In Paul's day, an uncovered head... For a woman, in the presence, in a mixed group, was a sign of rebellion. It was basically a sign of being a radical feminist, okay? To, pro to proclaim your independence and your power and your autonomy, it was an act of self-assertion and therefore pride. Paul says this is not to be the pattern for women in the church. He says if you're going to have your head uncovered in the company of women to identify with this ungodly, proud, rebellious movement and ideology you may as well shave your head. Now, in that day, female prostitutes would shave their head. He's saying, listen, if you're going to identify as a pagan, may as well be a pagan. Look like a pagan. Um, neither of these ways of presenting yourself as a woman were honoring to God 
and therefore neither were fitting for a disciple of Jesus. Paul calls women to express their submission to Christ by adopting the normal cultural markers of femininity and submission, to be distinct in the way they present themselves to the world. But women are not only to be distinct in the way they present themselves to the world, they're also to be discreet, to be discreet. Um, This, again, is where we get to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, at this point, some people will say, listen, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We can say yes, and often what's on the outward appearance is an expression of what is in our heart. Dress and hair and your appearance, yes, it's only skin deep, but it is not inconsequential. The way a woman carries herself and adorns herself is to express a spirit of humility, and listen to this, this is key, a desire for God to get all the attention. A desire for God to be admired. A desire for God to be desired. Here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. He says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. For Paul to say there is a kind of dress and hairstyle that is proper and a kind that infers there must be a kind that is improper. Now, this doesn't mean that if you have a French braid this morning that you're in sin. In that day, to braid the hair with costly jewels It was something that very wealthy women did. They would have these massive, like, beehive-looking hairdos that had incredibly expensive uh, things woven in and out. And they would wear clothing, garments that drew much attention to accentuate their beauty and to show off how rich they were. Now, how would that promote worship in the church? If women come into the church flaunting their beauty in ways that are immodest to attract the attention, the admiration and the desire of others, Paul says this is not how Christians should live. Likewise, if women come into the church flaunting their wealth, carrying a purse and wearing a blouse that costs as much as some people make in six months' salary, that's not a way to to promote unity in the church. That's a way to set yourself apart and say, I'm better than you, and I'm better than you, and I'm better than you because I wear this. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, listen, the way you dress is to express humility and modesty. You're not drawing attention to yourself by being immodest, and you're also not trying to gain admiration and show off your wealth. You want God to get all the admiration. You want God to receive all the glory, and that's going to show up even in how you dress. I'm not going to make concrete statements this morning about how this actually applies as far as how long or what clothes or how much you should spend or any of those things. These are things that should be worked out in wisdom by the leading of the Spirit, likely according to to what your husband thinks is best. Follow his lead in this. But this is important, that women manifest biblical womanhood in ways that are distinct. Okay, that's definitely a woman. But also in ways that are discreet that are modest and humble and desire that God would get all the glory. This doesn't mean we hide beauty or we try to mask it. It means we're not unnecessarily drawing attention to it. There's much, much more we could say about this, but but let it be said um, that it needs to be discreet. You know what? The way that you dress, the way that you emphasize your external appearance, 
it should really re- reflect not just humility, but it should also say something about what you think is really most important. What do you think is most valuable, external beauty or internal character? Because that can show up even in how you dress. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, which is the only sight that matters, is very precious. Is it more important to you how you look or who you are? Are you more concerned with godly character or with your physical appearance? Godly women make a value judgment between these things. And they know that the inner person, that that beauty, that inner beauty of holiness and maturity and Christ-likeness is far more important than your complexion, your hairstyle, and if you keep up with the latest fads with clothing, if you can afford them. All that stuff is secondary to who you are on the inside. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's what truly matters. Single guys in the room, that's what truly matters in a woman, just so you know. Old men in the room whose wives are maybe still beautiful, but they don't look exactly the way that they did on your wedding day. This is what truly matters. And godly men value that so much that their love for and delight in their bride only increases as that inner beauty grows and increases even though the external beauty may begin to fade a little bit. This is what we need to value when it comes to womanhood and femininity. Biblical womanhood is expressed outwardly in a manner that is both distinctly feminine and discreet. And it's cultivated inwardly in the beauty of holiness and Christ-likeness. So we need to think rightly. I want you to believe the truth that men and women are, are equal but different, having different roles and functions. And we want to obey. We want to submit to those roles God has called us to. And for women, I'm calling you this morning to obey the Lord by manifesting and expressing your womanhood in ways that honor Christ and submit to his commands. But there's a third point this morning. I want to call you to joyfully delight in God's design for women. Because you could leave here this morning believing what the Bible says. Okay, I understand that's true. And even committing to obey, I guess this is what I have to do. But it's possible to do those things with no heart, for it to be empty. But listen to what Psalm 1911 says. Psalmist writes, the rules of the Lord, including what he says about womanhood, are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. In Psalm 119, verse 127, it says, Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. You see, the biblical vision for what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man is not only true, 
And not only right and correct, it is also good and beautiful and satisfying. We must not only reject unbelief and reject disobedience, but we also need to reject begrudging, half-hearted obedience. You remember the story of, of Lot and his family? They are sucked into the ungodly culture and city of Sodom. They're living there. And God's about to destroy that city. But in his grace, he sends two angels to rescue them. And they, they warn them. They tell them, listen, God is going to destroy the city. You need to flee for your life. But Lot and his family were slow to respond. In God's mercy, these angels grabbed them by the hand and literally dragged them away from the city. So they were technically obeying God's command to flee. But there wasn't a lot of heart in it. In fact, Lot's wife, as they're fleeing the city, looks over her shoulder. And this isn't just about, you know, the way her head was turned. It's about the way her heart was turned. She looked over her shoulder because she didn't want to leave. She looked over her shoulder because she missed what was back there. And she desired it. In God's judgment, she was changed into a pillar of stone, of salt. She was killed. Don't be like Lot's wife, fleeing a secular understanding of feminism fleeing maybe your own fleshly desires to disobey. Don't turn away from all that, but at the same time look over your shoulder and long for and miss what you've left behind. That never ends well, and it doesn't please God. It's possible to render to God external obedience, but not have a change of the affections, a change of the desires. Such hollow religion is not pleasing to God. If you are going to delight in God's design, therefore, it's going to mean we have to reject the lies. You have to reject the lie that all authority is bad and harmful. That any differentiation of power means injustice. That's simply not true. You have to reject the lie that differences, different roles, different functions, means inequality. That is simply not true. You need to cast off the lie that true freedom is found in rejecting God's design and reaching for, grasping for something that's been forbidden. It's the lie that Eve believed and it brought pain and heartache. You need to reject the lie that if you embrace the biblical roles and the biblical limitations for women, that it will somehow minimize your worth or your dignity or your value or your joy. That is a lie to be rejected. You need to reject the lie that biblical roles will reduce your satisfaction in life. On the contrary, walk by faith. Affirm and respond to godly male leadership. Don't feel threatened or resentful. Uh, don't grit your teeth when you read those texts of Scripture and say, I guess it's true and I should probably obey it, but I wish this was different. Receive, not just in your mind, but in your heart, that God's design for you is good. And you know what's going to happen if you do that? If you delight in God's perfect will for you, if, it is, if you find it and discover it and experience it to be satisfying and freeing, then love for God and others is actually going to compel you to promote that kind of life to others. To not be embarrassed that God calls women to certain roles and to a certain way of expressing their femininity but to rejoice in it, delight in it, and become an advocate for that kind of womanhood. We see this in Titus 2. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. 
They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You see, biblical womanhood is not only to be personally embraced, it's also to be joyfully promoted. This happens in discipleship. This happens in the context of the church as you women encourage one another to live out God's design and to rejoice in it. This is God's call for you as women, to delight in it, and therefore that joy will overflow as you call others to join you in living out God's good and perfect design for women. I want to leave you this morning as we close with just three motives. Three motives. Why should you believe God's word? Why should you obey God's word? Why should you delight in this vision for womanhood? Number one, for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the glory of God, you have the opportunity as a woman to show the world the glory of God as you reflect his image in biblical femininity. But not only that, you also have the opportunity to show the world the glory of God in the power of the gospel, as you show the world what it looks like when Christ comes in and changes a woman so that you're not who you used to be. The power of redemption brings God glory as people look and say, these women are different. They live differently. They manifest their femininity differently. They have a joy that is different. That points to the power of the gospel, the power of a changed life. Biblical womanhood proclaims to the watching world the goodness of God and his gospel, the beauty of his design and the power of his redeeming grace. Do it for the glory of God. Secondly, why should you believe and obey and delight for the sake of obedience to Christ? This is your expression of love and obedience as a disciple of Jesus. If you claim to love Jesus, and if you really say you want to be faithful to follow him, rebellion against God's design for womanhood is incompatible with those things. This is to be embraced for the sake of obedience to Christ. And then finally, and we'll close with this, this is for the sake of your joy. It's for the sake of your joy. The oldest lie in the Bible is in Genesis 3. It says if you obey God and you embrace his limitations, you are missing out. It's absolutely a lie. Wisdom leads to joy and blessing. Obedience leads to flourishing as a woman. Foolishness will lead to pain and loss and regret. Friends, I want to leave you with this word from Jesus. He says, come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll tell you, if you try to be something you're not as a woman, it will weigh you down, it will wear you out, and it will crush you. Jesus says, come to me if you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. He says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It means that when we come to submit to Christ and yield our minds and our wills and our hearts to him, we experience true freedom. We experience real joy. And I want to invite you to that this morning. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word and for how clear it is. We confess that often our hearts are slow to receive what you say. That our minds sometimes wrestle with the competing truth claims from the world and the flesh and the devil, the lies that whisper to us that this cannot be good or right or satisfying. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith today, that we would think and believe 
your truth. We pray that you would give us the spiritual strength to obey, to yield our wills to your word. And pray, God, that you would stir up in our hearts true joy and delight in your design for men and women. Lord, for those women in here who have experienced pain and harm because there are others who have used some of these verses to manipulate them and exert power over them, I pray that they would hear this morning not a call to respond to men, but a call to respond to Christ because that is really at the heart of all of this. I pray that you would heal those hurts and that you would give them faith to believe that obeying you, following you, trusting you will bring joy, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, for some in our midst who may not be saved, who may not have experienced salvation, this may sound so foreign to them. This may sound completely alien, especially in our current cultural context. I pray that you would open their eyes to behold your truth, that they would see through the lies, that they would see through the darkness, and that this biblical truth would illuminate in their hearts the reality of your grace, your power, your truth. And I pray that they would respond to you today in faith and obedience, trusting in Jesus as their Savior and committing to follow him as disciples. We pray all this in his name. Amen.